Hey everyone, welcome back to Vinylism. I'm your host, Adam Winchell, and today we have Kimo with us as usual. What's going on, Kimo? Not much. It's just really hot in Westlake Village in California, so I, think I am staying. Out here. Yeah, California is just hellish right now. <laughs> kind of hot on the, the, the whole globe right now. Yeah, seems to be. And that voice you just heard is uh, Kenny. He's back with us too. What's going on, Kenny? What's going on, guys? Good to be here. Good to chat. Always nice to see you. Welcome back. And uh, for this episode, we have a special guest, and we're really excited about this. We've got recording artist, guitarist, singer, songwriter, Josh Klinghoffer with us. How are you doing, Josh? Pretty all right. How are you all? Are you all in California or no? Yes, we are. Yeah. Oh, okay. I just started. To, I, I thought you were, and then for some reason, uh, I thought maybe you, you could be anywhere. Yeah. The magic of Zoom, you could be anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, we wanted to have you on just to talk, like, obviously vinyl as usual, but like records and your history of music. And uh, so you're from L.A. as well, right? You started, you, you've grown up here. I, ha I was born here. I grew up in the San Fernando Valley. Uh, I was born in Santa Monica, but yeah, we've, my family has always lived in the San Fernando Valley. And now I currently live in Pasadena, which feels like another world compared to where I grew up. And I used to come over here to Poobaz Records um, when I was a kid uh, on the recommendation of Rodney Bingenheimer from K-Rock. And, uh, and when I would drive over here, I, I, I felt like uh, I was in a new place, like a new, new city. So, yeah, Pasadena is a, a way for me to feel like I left L.A. while still being in it. Is that store still there? Um, it's not in the location it was when I was a kid, but um, until recently there was a Boobaz record still, and it was a strange store. It was it was kind of located on it was on it was located next to the Guitar Center on Colorado Boulevard, but it it, it just had a very funny vibe in there. Um, they had good stuff and they had a good use selection, but um, it was almost as if the employees wanted you to leave. The minute you walked in, I don't know. It was always there was always a funny, funny uh, atmosphere in there. Like these customers are such a nuisance. Like once you well, they said they weren't rude or anything. They just, they just didn't notice your presence. And even when you're ready to with a big stack of records, they were sort of like, oh, um, what you know, kind of like that. <laughs> Empire <laughs> Records. What kind of music yeah. did you grow up with? Uh, what kind of music did you grow up with in your household? Um, in the household, I, my dad always had a huge record collection. Um, so it, my whole life, there there was this shelf with, you know, what looked like thousands of records on them. Um, and I'm trying. I always. I mean, I always kind of default to saying that my my earliest favorite music was the Beatles and the Beach Boys, and that was five years old. I, I remember. Uh, my uncle made me a Beach Boys tape that I had. My dad made me a Beatles tape. And, and then I had discovered my parents or my, mostly my dad's box of 45s, seven inches. I played them on my Fisher Price turntable, which made them sound extra crunchy and, and cool. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I think of as my early two favorites, Beatles, Beach Boys, the Monkees. Um, but I was into music even before that, like children's records. I actually was just looking through these piles of records that I've accumulated over the last couple of years. And I Sesame Street records that I listened to as a kid. And I remember this one called the Pink Panther 
rocks or something like that and they played there was just like cover versions of pink floyd i remember and billy joel and that that was definitely pre five years old so i've always kind of had an awareness of how cool music is i had a uh, spider-man record like one of the first records that i had i don't i must somebody must have given it to me as a gift as a kid i don't i can't remember what it was but it was spider-man it had a comic and it was there was audio of like dialogue of like an episode of like acting out series. stuff on it. I think I yeah, had that too. but there was music like songs, all dramatic like, you know, it kicked on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Those kids records. I mean, you know, it's like anything they, they, uh, um, I mean, not like you're going to spend all tons of time going through all of them when you find cool ones, but I, you know, if you're ever kind of bored of the usual stuff at a record store, go to the, go to the spoken word section or the kids section. And there's definitely interesting things in there. <laughs> For sure. So awesome. go ahead, Kimo. You guys kind of know each other from working at Tempo Records, right? So how you guys met? Yeah, I'm trying to remember if I worked 94 to 96 or 95 to 97. Uh, well, I, I, I think you were working there when I started, and that was 97, January 4th, very beginning of 97. Holy and moly. It's possible that you left uh, shortly after that. But mm-hmm. I, I mean, I mean, I was in there so much that, um, you know, we, we were there together a lot, but I mean, obviously I remember, cause how long were you a manager for? Because I, Just one year. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, so if you, if you were only there from 90, you know, for two years total, is that three, what you're three like, years, three years, two or three? Yeah. Yeah. Then, then I think uh, I'm pretty sure we overlapped. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember. Uh, yeah. Seemed like weren't there like quite a few musicians, like friends, people you you met from through working there? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Whether they were employees or not, it was just kind of a <laughs> uh, a meeting place. It, it was um, uh-huh. it was you you didn't work in the old location, did you, Kimo? No, I didn't. I just worked okay, at the cool. Northridge one. Yeah. Well, the the one that was a little further down Reseda in Northridge that I our friend Brian. Smith uh, worked at very briefly before they moved. He, he started working there and at uh, the old location, which I used to go into also. It looked kind of like Record Trader, if you remember. Like it was more, it, it was laid out the same way and it was sort of brown and wooden, you know, shelves everywhere. Unlike Tempo that we know that was kind of very white and plastic bins and stuff like that. Um, yeah, the, the the original tempo in Northridge looked a lot like Record Trader, and it was, and it was you know that that was that was a cool place too. But yeah, when when I mean I, I feel like um, I still talk to a lot of the people that work there, you know. So as I'm sure you you might do, I mean we're yeah. definitely all still you know one phone call away. It was a really special, really special place. I wanted to work there nice. so badly, and they wouldn't let me because I was a little younger than everybody, I think. And then also because I would go in there every day and talk to the employees. So they thought that if they hired me, it would just be nonstop yeah, dude's, social. You're just going to talk all day, not sell yeah. anything. <laughs> yeah, no. I, uh, yeah, but I, I missed that place thoroughly. I had a childhood dream to, to work at Guitar Center and then I got hired at Guitar Center and it sucked. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's wanking. Yeah, it was it. not a not a dream at all. That didn't last. It lasted like a week. Yeah, I, I I I when I was a child, I just enjoyed being at Guitar Center, but I didn't want to work there. <laughs> and, and Tempo's not still there, is it? No, 
No, the company is gone, I think, as well. Uh, and um, I, I, for years, I heard all kinds of shady, nefarious stories about the origins of the company and, you know, like all that went on behind the scenes. But I, when I left Tempo Northridge, I went briefly to work in um, a store that they opened briefly in uh, the Sherman Oaks Fashion Square. <laughs> and it was basically yeah. just, it was open from September, maybe till a little bit after Christmas. And it did zero business until basically Thanksgiving. And then it slammed until New Year's. And then, and then it died down again. And I think it closed. But um, I, I, because I had made that switch and started working in a different store and met a different district manager, like I, I, I feel like I, I knew a lot about the working, the, the kind of the workings of the company and the distrib- the distribution house. And cause I actually, Ken McCullough, our old, our old district manager um, works uh, on Ventura at the record store there. And uh, do you, do you know that? Have you seen him lately? CD trader? Yeah. Yeah. He still yeah. works there now. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I run into him from time to time. I, I love that guy. You know, I, I live walking distance from CD Trader. I still have not been there yet. I've got to get over there. I don't know what, what? I don't know what I'm doing. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I I say I say what like that. I mean, you have a podcast called Vinyl. What is it? Vinylism. Vinylism, and there's a lot of vinyl right around the I, corner from you. I mean, but I, but I do stuff like that all the time. I have way too much piling up is one thing, but uh, okay, that's, not, yeah. that's not a good excuse either. So <laughs> one day I'll make it over there. Well, it's, it speaks well to your ability to, you know, to not, you know, like ravenously uh, feed into your addiction. <laughs> <laughs> I still do sometimes. <laughs> like some of us, like my, like I do. Well, how many yeah, records like would you say you, you have? Go ahead. You at Ami- when you end up at Amoeba Records and then come home with like, you know, barely holding up everything with two arms, you know. <laughs> problem yes how many records did you say you have josh i couldn't begin to answer because it it got so out of hand when i was in the chili peppers because there was so much touring and so much you know shopping on days off and so much sending of records home that you know it got to the point where i was just like every every break i mean even till today i you know i um i'm going through boxes of stuff that i purchased months and months before so i've sort of I have no concept of how many I have anymore. Or like presents a... to yourself from the past. You're like, oh, what's in this box? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you finding cool stuff. Like, I mean, you know, traveling globally around, you know, Europe and places, finding cool stuff that you would never run across here in the States. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have whole sections. I mean, I, I it, um, n- not just records, but all, all manner of shopping. I, I can get a little bit like, like, Mm-hmm, like that and um so I, I have whole sections upstairs of um you know like i went a little i went a little nutso in uh south america one particular trip and i have so many records from colombia argentina so i have these just these sections that i like i barely got into all of them because there's so many um and then i went really over the top in cuba uh thinking that oh. like oh no one's gonna have any of this stuff i got it pretty much like like a like a <laughs> like uh as much as i can as much as i can pack into my suitcases like a buying buying beach towels to pack records i have a bunch of cuban beach towels if anyone needs <laughs> very cool 
how so did now, you start? How did you start out like musically? Like, um, I started. Um, well, as I said, I always loved music, and and I, as I kind of was getting a little older, the ripe old age, like seven, eight, nine, you know, taping music off the off the radio, and which I'm really grateful I still had that experience. Um, but uh, you know, just listening to the pop music of the day, and then getting into rock. I mean, I remember when when Guns N' Roses first. You know, because my father had Led Zeppelin records and, you know, kind of getting into heavier stuff after the Beatles and the Beach Boys and sort of, you know, looking at music from the 70s, Led Zeppelin. And then you sort of, you know, what else I'm trying to I'm trying to think. But I mean, I remember when Guns N' Roses came came around like that was that was a, a monumental moment. And so things like that of that era, rock, rock from the 80s. Um, you know, I, I, I admit to being into Motley Crue for a bit and, you know, some of that stuff. I just first two was... albums after oh, that, yeah. you know, Anyone well, <laughs> you know, for a, for a youngster, <laughs> I, I made the whole journey. I was like, cause Dr. Feelgood came out right around then, you know, but I was also into music on K-Rock. My cousin was, he, my cousin showed me Morrissey when I was a kid. So I, I remember coming back to LA after seeing who Morrissey was and thinking, wow, that's, I think that's the coolest guy I've ever seen. And, uh, and, and this, there was always sort of Depeche Mode and those kind of things on the radio. I didn't fully understand it all yet. And as a kid, you're sort of like, wait, how can you like all this stuff? Um, but, you know, I think uh, once I hit junior high in 1991, which I think is when I was in seventh grade, all the records of that the later half of that year came out pearl jam 10 sound gardens bad motor finger uh i i it had been out already but i remember getting temple of the dogs record around then nirvana nevermind came out around then chili peppers blood sugar sex magic i had known of the chili peppers because a friend of mine had made me a mixtape with some songs off mother's milk on it but i didn't own any other records yet so i got blood sugar sex magic um you know all these records um and they came out all in the same week didn't they all pretty much yeah (laughs) i know for sure Nevermind and blood sugar came out the same day um and i want to say use your illusion one and two came out around then so like i i just always i still think of 1991 as the pivotal year when i became my own music fan you know because everything you know before that i was sort of like um you know stuff that my parents had played um whatever's and, on the radio type yeah and then whatever's on the radio and stuff like that i mean not yeah. to say that those things i just mentioned were on the radio but that was i i suddenly felt a little bit more like an an older person because i was now going to a new school where you actually had to change classes between you know subjects or whatever um so i just think of that as my awakening because obviously i still spend time with some of these artists <laughs> you know i'm still there these artists are very much still a part of my life some of the records i got those week in those weeks of 1991 classics man some great stuff yeah and and i think you know that that informed my musical taste all those bands from seattle mud honey i was really into you know and 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 anything that those bands had mentioned in articles i was really i would explore and then i think when i got my driver's license around at 16 um and i met bob forrest um who i started playing music with at around 17 I suddenly was surrounded by all these older people and like quite a bit older. And I felt like a little, like a little dorky 
teenager and I, I kind of devoted myself to studying the music that they all mentioned all the time. And David Bowie was kind of one of my, was my, my favorite thing at that period uh, when I turned 16. Um, but all, you know, talking heads, television, um, you know, that kind of, that kind of music from New York. And I, I, I also have a memory uh, of spending all night packing my cassette tape case when my family was going to go on um, a weekend to Santa Barbara. And then we got, we got going, we got on the 101, probably right near your house, Kimo. I was like, okay, it's time to, <laughs> time to look for my tapes and pick what I want to listen to after we've made a little small talk. And then, wait, where are my tapes? Where are my tapes? And I left them at the house. No. So I, I convinced my parents and, and my grandparents were to, to pull off at the next possible exit that we could, that we thought maybe would have, you know, like probably somewhere in Ventura. I think we pulled off where there looked like there was a shopping area and there was a, a warehouse and, uh, and I, they said, all right, you can buy one tape. So I bought um, sex pistols and I was about 10 years old or 11 years, 10 years old. I think and I just remember the sex pistols. I had heard about them now. Um, and you know how I heard about them was there was this, um, this one of my first CDs I ever owned was uh, there was this, big uh i think it was called the moscow music and peace festival and it was in 1989 and it was all these hair like heavy metal bands from the u.s going over and playing what was kind of the first western rock show in moscow and it was on tv you know there was lots of mtv segments from there maybe the whole concert was even on pay-per-view or something i don't remember but um there was this compilation tribute cd and they were all doing songs on this cd um, by artists who had died of drugs and alcohol. So there was a <laughs> oh, Sex nice. Pistols song, there was nice a T-Rex team. song, there was Thin Lizzy, there was all these bands that I had never, that I, you know, yet to kind of hear of or explore, um, but they were being covered by Motley Crue and Bon Jovi and, you know, all these other people. There was like a, yeah. like a, like a drum tribute to, and they played Moby Dick, Jason Bonham, and a couple other oh. drummers. Yeah, so like this, 11 song cd called the, it was the moscow music and peace festival that i remember because of all the bands that were covered on it i kind of wound up becoming fans of nice. <laughs> one thing we didn't another. have access to so yeah. much stuff like now you know we we didn't have the internet back in those days so like you know i can recall you know my my early days of music buying like i got turned on to metal you know like the you know early 80s from like an older older stepbrother. And uh, I used to just go to like, like the warehouse music was close to me and and buy stuff because the album covers look cool, you know? And it was like, you could tell a metal album because there'd be like someone with like an ax, you know, or- <laughs> Metal. You know, dragons and so whatever metal. kind of, yeah. And it just like, you know, see stuff like Saxon, that sounds cool. And like buy this just random stuff, you know? Man of War. <laughs> yeah, like Wasp and- I remember, remember buying Striper. Like I think that was a little later, and like I didn't realize they were like a Christian band, which was like, <laughs> yeah, because I think it's kind of misleading. They look. I was like, like yeah, wrestlers. black and yellow, and yeah, <laughs> like their guitars. Like oh, this looks cool. I like the stripes on their guitars, and like I bought them. Like what? <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, I remember. I feel like I I, I was never into stri Striper, but I remember seeing them on MTV. I'm like oh okay, that's kind of a kind of a look and. You know, it's not like I like things. Didn't it's not like I like things that were too far off from that. But 
when I heard that they were Christian, it was really a uh, uh, shock. <laughs> I was surprised. It was, um, yeah. I, and then I suppose like right around the time I met chemo as well, like, cause I met chemo probably right before I got my license. I would ride my bike up to the record store chemo to work at. Um, I was, I was getting into, you know, I guess what would be called uh, indie rock at the time, like pavement and built to spill and um, some of the, and sunny day real estate. And, um, and uh, you know, 30 out six was a band that chemo and I both liked a lot. Um, and uh, yeah, that kind of stuff. Um, Modest Mouse. I remember, you know, like that's 97. I was also really into bands from England at that time. You know, Blur. I'm, I'm still a huge fan of. Oh yeah, of Damon Albarn and you know all those bands from that time and, and Radiohead. You know, those that's all mid '90s stuff. We had a friend called Doug Jones who came into Tempo where we worked, and he was a big bootleg collector. And he didn't get his driver's license till quite a bit after me. So um, we had this this sort of program worked out where I would drive to all the concerts, and he would make me tapes. And he, he turned me on to a band called That Dog, which I was really into. And uh, I was really into a band called the Geraldine Fibbers, which is a nice segue oh, to, uh, <laughs> the, they were my favorite band for a while. It was the first time I hung out with Brian Smith outside of work or tempo was going to see them in June of 95, like right when their record came out, the first record. But um I wound up getting a job at their manager's office and I was really jazzed about that because I love that band. But, um, and I got that job through a person that I met through chemo and, and they also managed tool and they managed hum and they formerly had managed Jane's addiction and porn papyrus, but no longer. And Lollapalooza. Um, yeah. And, and the, the head of the company the, the, the uh, was one of the founders of Lollapalooza uh called ted gardner who sadly just passed away a couple of weeks mm -hmm. ago like two two months ago maybe um which is a real shame because uh it just makes me think of all the time that you know he was out there that i could have you know somehow reached out i think he had moved back to australia but yes um yeah yeah actually i bought a, a jane's addiction bootleg on a vinyl bootleg of this show that i had on cd uh, a cd bootleg of um from it was a Lollapalooza tour show from washington dc um but it was a really well-produced vinyl bootleg and i just opened it i bought it a couple weeks ago in, in seattle and uh and um I, you, you opened it up and it gives this sort of very well-written synopsis about what Lollapalooza was and who it was founded by and, you know, oh. and it lists all the all the people it lists ted and mark Geiger and all these names that i used to pick up the phone to uh, who would call that office that were all sort of at the beginning, Don Muller. Yeah. Like all these, you know, people that when I was 16 and I was working at this office being just a sort of unpaid, um, intern. Phone. Yeah. They kind of strung me along. They were sort of like, Oh, we'll see at the end of the summer if we can hire you on. And I was like, <laughs> I don't care. I just love having something to do. And, um, being around at the end the of the summer. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Being around. Yeah. I, you know, I always loved hanging out with older people, you know, these, these ancient people at 23 and Tyrone was probably 20, 23, Julie, who I worked in the office was 20, you know, they were in their early 20s. I was like, wow, I'm hanging out with older people. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was a fun summer. I remember at the end of the summer, they called me in the office in the back and they said, well, 
we can't really afford to keep you on. So we'll give you 350 bucks for the summer. And I was like, great. And they gave, <laughs> they gave, me, they yeah. gave me $350. I want to say in cash. And I went straight from work that day. And they were sort of like, if you want to, we love having you. So if you want to come back, you can. And I was like, okay, maybe I'll, yeah. And I went straight from the work to Guitar Center, Sherman Oaks, and bought um, whatever cymbals Matt Cameron was playing at the time, which were <laughs> Z Customs, Zildjian Z Customs, uh, 18 and 19 inch crashes. And that was all my money. And I bought them. The guy who was the salesman that day was a guy called Greg Upchurch, who had taken Jack Iron's place in the band 11. <laughs> and, and then he, he went on to play in the band Puddle of Mud. <laughs> Oh my gosh. It just feeds right back yeah. into music. They pay you there for your job and you play feed it right like, back you know, into Yeah. Six six degrees of of Josh Klinghoffer, man. Like musicians, <laughs> you know. Jeez. Yeah, it's all yeah. because of Tyrone, who I met through CSUN at the cafeteria when we were living in the dorms. And it was through him who met Shepard Stevenson. A pygmy love circus who's friends with danny carey of tool who was a dissing for tool <laughs> he said oh they need an office person so they hired tyrone and then josh you came on board like soon after that right yeah not too long after after tyrone started officially working there and he was actually getting paid um <laughs> i was i was uh uh, well, I mean, what's so funny about that period that summer was that I, I went and picked up the payroll checks for the office from the, the financial management company that I wound up working with later on with, with the Chili Peppers. Like, so I, I've known all these people for so long. What else? There was more funny connections like that. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, I mean, the girl, one of the girl who worked in the office wound up working with Brian later at the Troubadour. Oh, uh, Julie. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there was just all these funny connections that just carried on from that one little um, summer in the uh, in the office. You were like seventeen at this nice. time. 18? So that was like 90, six, 16. Oh, wow. Ninety-seven. Jeez. No, it was 90, 96. It was ninety-six because I got my license on October third, to uh, ninety-five, my sixteenth yeah. birthday, the day the OJ verdict was read. <laughs> And that night, oh, I, I drove my parent, my my friend's parents' car down to Irvine Meadows from Northridge to see uh, Page Plant, Jimmy Page and Robert oh, Plant. Yeah. And and he, my friend, had his license since April, or so that's when his birthday was. And I just got mine that day, but I didn't have my own car yet. So he picked me up, and and I got in, and he's like, "Hey, do you want to drive?" And I was like, "Are you kidding me? Of course! Like, how, you don't want to drive? You're a mad person." So I I I drove, and when you think about it now, like a sixteen, two sixteen-year-olds driving down the four hundred five for an hour and a half to Irvine Meadows, like I can't I can't even imagine sixteen-year-old <laughs> knowing how to get, you know. This is like pre without the internet, yeah. Yeah, Thomas guy for sure. I just knew you got on the 405 and you drove to Irvine, and the signs were there for the Irvine Meadows. I asked my friend once, What did we do before, like you know, MapQuest and all that stuff? He was like, We just got lost, that's what happened. (laughs) Thomas, yeah, you know, you did, Thomas guy, dude. I had the books, yes, the big fat books, man, like in the back of the car, and like take a look in there. The page is torn out. I, I love those books. My my, we got them all the time. Yeah, I mean, I think I don't know if we got them every year, but we we all we had a few of them. I used to just study them. I was like, wow, because yeah. you know it was, it was like you know big 
book and you'd have to like this page goes you know, like jump to 20 pages down exactly yeah, it wasn't it, even like, linear it's like if you're going north then skip to page to the page you know, before yeah exactly. it's like a choose your own adventure book <laughs> yeah, yeah it's great it's, it's it was a uh, yeah i mean i i i remember when i i do remember when i because when i kind of was that summer it was all driving for them you know i had to make all run all these errands and i definitely had a Thomas brothers ride in my little volvo and i but I really learned the the streets of Hollywood that that summer, and and um, you know I kind of remember the, at, when I started hanging out in Hollywood friends of mine. They were sort of like, I don't know where to go. And I was like, I, I do. Don't worry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Useful. What yeah, are some of your guys' guys. favorite favorite music? I mean, I think I know Kima. I, I although I, I haven't talked to you about music in a while, but I mean, I. I we go back a long ways so what's what are you guys into yeah what are you listening to now Kimo? what like what's your favorite stuff right now a little bit i've been listening to hoover phonics some trip hop a lot of trip hop lately like massive attack sneaker pimps um and been branching out to let's see what else uh i'm drawing blanks because i'm getting old uh but uh i've been listening to moon tooth a lot lately i've been listening to uh, i'm gonna write them down yeah they're they're the guy's got chops like no other he's super young guy and just like super talented the whole band is great it's pretty heavy heavy rock like kind of like uh what would you say um I can't really put a label to it. It's just like really fun, positive, like messages. It's a weird mix of like, like yeah. I want not weird, but they, there's like poppy, kind of poppy sounding choruses and hooks almost mixed in with like technical shred metal kind of. <laughs> so it's kind of a, it's kind of a mishmash. Their stuff. All right. I've been big on the smile Pretty record. You've, you've heard it, right, Josh? Oh uh, yeah. I listened to it last night. It's funny because so I, I, I I dusted off my computer skills when they when they did that uh, Glastonbury performance and I was like oh, okay I got to turn these into files so I can listen to them and send them to people because it's so good and so inspiring so I was like put them into a program and I just haven't done this kind of thing in a while and I, I very very meticulously you know turned that Popping one performance into into you know files that I could listen to and then the record was such a strange release where they were putting out one song at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and then so I had had all those songs, and then when the when the full length came out, I felt like it, it was kind of like a oh I guess it's out. I guess I could listen to it now. But I, so it took me a, a little while to get around to it because when you're from where or when you're from when we're from, that's not how records came out. Where they basically exactly. to put out one song every couple of weeks for six months, and then the whole records out. So. Yeah, I, I mean, I was, it was kind of like you not going to the record store. Like, I do that a lot with shows or with records. Like, I can't wait. I'm like sort of chomping at the bit to get this record. And then it comes out, and I'm so used to the feeling of not having it that I'm like, eh, I guess, I mean, I yeah. technically don't have time right now. I actually have to do all this other stuff. So it'll go. And, and I, I was telling someone about how I've, how I've been known in my life to um, – really be looking forward to movies and seeing trailers and like, Oh, I can't wait for that to come out. And then there's, and then I'll go 20 years until I see it. 
something to look forward to yeah i mean it's like whoa and i finally watched the movie like i've been meaning to watch this for it's been 20 years <laughs> sheesh that happened yeah, recently. it happens like well it's not been 20 years but like like that doctor strange movie that came out a couple few months ago or whatever i was like yeah it looks you know no have not seen it yeah, but it's it even on it's on disney plus now exactly too, so i could watch it any day since i have disney plus but i haven't yeah i top gun i was looking forward to for ever and then it was delayed and delayed what, and delayed and new, delayed yeah the new one the new one yeah 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 because i was a huge fan of the first one so um <laughs> and now i still haven't seen it it's been out forever and i was in europe i was kind of on tour and someone you know made me promise that i wouldn't watch it on my laptop so i, I still I've only been to one cinema, one movie theater since COVID, I think, unless I'm forgetting one, but um, I'm still not, I mean, maybe now at this point, but I still wasn't totally, totally excited about going. And Same then, here, man. I haven't done that. I haven't done that either. I, I did go to one screening at the, the Los Feliz 3, which is now an American Cinematheque Theater. Um, I saw uh, they screened Men at Work. Remember that one? Wow. Yeah. Going back. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I got, I've been kind of a wuss. I mean, I, I've been helping deal with my 75 year old mom move into a new living situation and stuff. So I've been like super you know, sensitive to the COVID thing, but like I had to, I had to skip the failure show that I was like excitedly waiting for, for quite a while. Cause they had to cancel the last, the last shows that they were going to do because of the pandemic. But I was just like, it's too close to the time where I got to move my mom. I can't get sick right now. So it kind of sucks. Hopefully getting closer to some normalcy, man, to just, you know, get back to, to life the way it should be. That was an awesome show, by the way. <laughs> Rubbing it in. So you, uh, yeah. you, you, you met Bob, to bring it back to like when you were an intern, you met Bob Forrest. You guys formed Bicycle Thief? Or yeah. you joined with him? I, I didn't meet him through that internship, but it was the following year that I met him. I met him through uh, Kimo and my friend and coworker, Brian Smith, who, who lived around the corner from the house I grew up in. And his older sister, Max, dated Bob Forrest at that time. And uh, he was newly sober. And, um, you know, he was, he, he was a truly an old man to me at that point. And he was whopping 37 years old <laughs> and uh and so i was you know i was like uh um his his then girlfriend max said oh you should call my brother's friend he lives around the corner he, he's really into john Prashante's solo album and you know uh bob has been friends with john obviously and um you know it's kind of um it just took a chance and called me up uh, 17 and we made this really funny little little duo for a while and then we made a record that was produced by another duo and they were um they were in a band called sugar tooth together their names were mark hutner and josh blum and they uh they were they were sort of becoming producers uh, like sort of in the in the style of the dust brothers like a like a duo that right. kind of sugar tooth that's that band they had that song like sold, sold my, my fortune, fortune. That that. that's that it was, yeah that yeah was on, that, that was the one. one that was like the radio single Yep, uh, that's it. Yep. Um I had that so, on CD. Yep. Yeah. So yeah. Um so yeah, those two two of the two of those guys from that band produced the Bicycle Thief album. And then we put a live band together featuring a couple other people. Um Kevin Fitzgerald of the aforementioned Geraldine Fibbers, 
who I'm hopefully going to see in Seattle this week because um, he sadly had a, a couple of strokes last yeah. year. And I got an email update saying that if anyone's in the Seattle area, um, it's very helpful for him and his to recovery. His recovery yeah. yeah. To, to kind of have some faith, like proper FaceTime and to like, see someone yeah. in person. So I'm going to try and see him this week. Nice. But he was a drummer for a bit. And then, then he, he was, uh, replaced by Chris Warren, still dear friend of mine who, who is Chad Smith's drum tech, who was touring with the Chili Peppers, Bicycle Thief did a lot of opening for the Chili Peppers back then and sort of around 99, 2000, Chris Warren would do double duty, he'd play drums, and then he would go work, uh, behind Chad. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of, I mean, skipping forward to when I ultimately wound up joining the Chili Peppers, like the seeds had been planted to where I, they all knew me for so long. Um, you know, it had been, it had been over 10 years at, at the time that I joined from when they first kind of met me. In fact, the day I met John and Flea for the first time, Emo, was the, the night before I started working at Tempo. So that was January 3rd, 1997. <laughs> and then I started working at Tempo, my dream, the next day, January 4th, 1997. And it was a very windy January 4th that day, and the power got knocked out. So we were sort of like, oh, well, what should we do? We can't, we should close. And then I think some of us went and got Chinese food for two hours. Do you remember that? And I think that was my first day at work. We went to the Golden China Inn, which was a place that we all used to go to because they were open till two or three in the morning and they, we'd sing karaoke and it was just a glorious place. Well, out in North interesting Ridge. little tidbit. Uh, I, I actually, I don't know why it stupidly like never popped into my head this way, but actually like the first concert the first like real concert I ever went to, it was Oingo Boingo in 1984, and the Chili Peppers opened for them. So, like, I, where I was it at the, at the, the, the Peppers? That was my first concert I ever went to. It was at, it was what used to be the Gibson Amphitheater. It yeah, was the like, Univer Universal it was Universal Amphitheater. Amphitheater. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and nobody in the audience knew who the Chili Peppers were. They <laughs> literally got booed off the stage. Yeah, no, it's famous. Yeah. It, I mean, that's so a, early for them. Yeah. Yeah. But that yeah. was actually like first concert, of like 13, me and my friend Brian, like we had to have his older brother drive us because 13, obviously, and like drop us off there. So, yeah. Bye. One of my, one of my first concerts ever was at that same place at the Universal Amphitheater. And it was, it was. Um, young MC opening for Millie Vanilli. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> yes, which we got tickets to from from family friends of ours who who worked at Fox TV station and uh, TV channel uh, network. And uh, there was yeah, you want to go see Millie Vanilli? Like I, I wasn't even a functioning concert goer yet, so I was like, sure, sure. You know, they're the biggest <laughs> thing in the world. But I mean, I think it's the coolest thing that of all time that young mc opened and he was just out there by himself rapping to to tracks it was so it was so cool <laughs> you know tracks pl played on by fleet <laughs> oh is that, nice. is that right yeah fleet plays the bass on bust a move right, of course I he's in the video That's he's right. in the video in the video stuffed animal pants, pants. Yeah. yeah how could i forget <laughs> yeah it's funny, right around this time, when I started buying vinyl, one of the first records I bought was John Frusciante's The Will of the Death. And that's when I first saw your name, Josh. That's uh, a very um, 
collectible vinyl. Yes, it is. I was lucky to grab it. I heard it was coming out. I was like, because I loved his stuff before that. And uh, I just took a chance on it. I got that in a taxi, I think, at the same time. Great records. Like, Yeah, thank you. I mean, th- that's funny because, I mean, when, th- when those came out on vinyl, I just remember thinking like, oh, wow, so cool coming out on vinyl. I mean, I guess those were sort of uh, early 2000s. So maybe vinyl was starting to come back up a little bit. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. the 90s were kind of like a dead zone for vinyl, you know, yeah. like and, and my vinyl collection was very like very spotty and specific whenever i had extra money and or i really cared about the record or i really loved the uh, cover or something i would buy the vinyl and i have a couple of these records some of them are still sealed because it's just been so long now but i didn't really need the vinyl records because my dad had a stereo with a record player um, but it was always hard for me to access this kind of high um, in the living room. I had a turntable growing up, uh, York's stereo, but I just always felt like my, uh, I, I, I didn't really, as a kid, I didn't, after, you know, childhood and playing the 45s on, I just felt like vinyl playing. It, it was, it was so. Uh, it's like quaint, right? Yeah. Well, it was just like, it was extra work. And I, and there were these amazing new things called CDs that I had just, you know, started buying, okay, you know, it's a vinyl just seemed like a yeah. cool thing to have, but you know, I definitely, I definitely spent more time listening to tapes and, and CDs. So I have all these amazing records on, like I have a copy of in utero that's still sealed. Oh, nice. Um, oh my gosh. I rode years my old bike next year. to, uh, to, um, uh, revolver records. It was called on, it was, it was in Granada Hills. I rode my bike there. I can't remember at the same time. Cause I remember buying Pearl jams versus they put it out a week early on vinyl, had a different cover. And, and I feel like I bought, I did the same thing where I rode my bike to get in utero. It's like around the same time. Mm-hmm. And then I also bought a copy of incesticide by Nirvana. And, and I was riding home my bike and I fell and it, and it scraped the cellophane on the incesticide. Um, so I went back and I got another one because oh, I wow. really wanted it. So I have one sealed and I have one open. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Great record. Yeah, I don't think kids have the, uh, maybe they do now again. I mean, I don't know if kids get on their bikes and, and ride, you know, what seems like, you know, a hellish crazy no, distance they, to buy a vinyl. They just get record. on a lime scooter now or, you know. One of those things it's with their parents' <laughs> credit card. <laughs> it also wasn't around. It was around this time I saw you with touring in PJ Harvey's band in like '04. Oh, oh, where did you see that? Detroit. I saw the show. It was the first time I ever saw her live. Great wow. show. Yeah. Uh, at St. St. Andrews. Where yes. did we play? Uh. I believe it was St. Andrews. Yeah, I had to drive up. I don't know the date of that, but. Yeah, somewhere in 2004. Actually, I, I don't know the date of that exactly, but I'm going to guess it's around my birthday because we played Indianapolis on my birthday that year. So it's probably September, October. Um, yeah, that was, did, that, that was an enormously fun tour. How did you link up, end up linking up with uh, PJ Harvey Camp that time? Through Vincent Gallo. Okay. <laughs> um, I had met Vincent Gallo through John Prashante um, the year prior to that, they were friends. They did some work together. Vincent made a video for John. Um, and I think it was, John had a birthday dinner and, um, Vincent was there. And I, 
I guess, you know, I've gotten to talking to him again. I'm, I'm a lot younger than these people. And I'm sort of like, well, these, these cool established artists, I, like, I don't know what to say to these people, but, um, but I, I wound up doing some shows with Vincent. So that was in 2001. I went to Japan with him myself, oh. myself. Oh, you didn't know that? No. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I did. It was, it was, um, when, remember when he put out that record, uh, when it was called, it was on warp. Yeah, it's yeah. There's all these amazing recordings that he made at home with this incredible, like, um, antiquated but amazing gear, like this high high end recording gear from the '40s and '50s. Um, he made this am- amazing sounding record, and um, and he's really big in Japan because of his advertisements and his film work, and um, he just has this strange cult following in Japan. So he got an offer to do a brief tour of japan so myself and carla azar from autolux holy um, moly went went over and we were we were a hot trio and we did four shows we did two in tokyo one in osaka and then one in hiroshima which was amazing but something about the travel like i didn't get a chance to walk around hiroshima and i was really annoyed about that but we played it was that that was the last show so that was the fourth show and it the first the two shows in tokyo was like i want to say it was christmas day or, or the day after christmas two shows at this beautiful but very nice theater very stark very you know kind of austere theater then in osaka it was kind of like a slightly more like a it was like the same kind of theater but as if it had been designed 20 years earlier <laughs> and then and then in hiroshima it was a club and it was it was called club quattro and there's actually email i'll send it to you when the moment we hang up um there's an amazing bootleg recording of that show oh really some 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 genius got an amazing recording of it (laughs) and and uh and i have it and i'll send it to you and it's um yeah and then we actually got together the same three people went and played the fuji rock festival about 18 months later um i want to say in 2003 maybe in the summer and then um it was later that year, I want to say, that um, Vincent had, uh, PJ Harvey had asked Vincent if, if he knew any musicians, any bass players specifically, because she was going to go on tour as a trio, which she had done that year with Rob Ellis, her original drummer, and Mick Harvey from the Bad Seats playing bass. And I happened to see that band in Paris. I was playing with Beck. And we played right before them. And I remember Steve McDonald, the bass player of that Beck band, and I were sitting on the side of the stage, like, because they were just ripping. And it was the first time, it was the first time she had played in a, with a trio where she was playing guitar in a while. And uh, she was going to do that again. So she asked Vincent if he knew any bass players and he gave her my number. And when she originally asked me to do the tour, it was to play bass. And I was sort of like, whoa, never played bass before in a band. Uh, That's, an incredible challenge like i'm used to being a sloppy guitar player which you can't do when you're playing bass so i um i i was very excited to do that and then over the course of you know sort of saying yes and meeting her over the phone it was about four months later she finally came to la to rehearse and like get the meet me and get the tour going she had met this guy called ding um dingo ding um, who was in the fall um but she'd seen the fall play and um, she really liked him. So he, he was hired as the bass player and I 
I became the guitar player and I played some drums, double drums. And she, she decided she didn't want to play guitar, but it was still a pretty rocking band. Like she was, that was a great really, band. That was a great tour. A yeah. Trio. That was a great, yeah. really good show. Yeah, Very like stripped you. down. I'm, and yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a funny era too. Uh, I, I mean, I've, I've definitely spent some time online looking. It's kind of in this dark period for bootlegs or definitely dark period for bootleg videos because camera phones weren't around yet. But I think people were just like, it was just maybe a little harder to get the camcorder in or whatever, or the, or the camcorders of that era were are high eight tapes. And yeah, you know, so there's a considerably low amount of bootlegs. Also there were, but there are a couple shows um, I used to, people used to call me and tell me that there was a show that we did in France, a festival that was on Showtime all the time. So, mm. I mean, it was a weird time. Like there was, you know, you could be on Showtime, but there's no good bootlegs <laughs> <laughs> where I feel like if that tour had been 10 years earlier, every show would be. Well, yeah, Cause it's like, what time did, when, when did YouTube start? Wasn't that like 2000 years after that? Yeah. Like, oh, yeah like, 2006. Yeah. Yeah, so like it wasn't until that. Then obviously like the videos and everything started, you know, exploding everywhere. A lot like way more stuff. Yeah, the uh yeah, that tour was 2004 and there's a there's a very small amount of it. There's out, actually a like, great DVD of that called Please Leave Quietly. Kimo, I brought that over to your house. You remember watching that a few months yes. ago? Or like last year? And yeah. of course, you're all over it, Josh. And there's like multi-angle camera angle stuff. Yeah, actually, yeah. Really job cutting it. Dire yeah, it. directed by Maria Machnash, who okay, does all Polly's artwork. Yeah, and photography. She's great. I, um, yeah, I actually just saw my my DVD copy of that upstairs. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, Huge fan of her. I've been buying all the reissues. I'm really glad finally they did a reissue of her stuff. And so, yeah, they like they did a good job on that. Definitely, they all look good. Yeah. So, when did you start kind of going out on your own with your own bands? Like, you know, like you started doing your own music probably around this time. Uh, well, I was always a. Uh, I was. I always wanted to do that. I always wanted a band of my own. Um, but I starting as I did as a drummer, like I was not a songwriter yet. And then when I started playing with Bob, it's kind of, it's kind of when I admitted to myself that I had to be a guitarist now. And that's kind of when I taught myself to play. Like I, I didn't really play. Cause I remember there was times where Kimo played guitar and, and I didn't play guitar yet. Like we would play music together sometimes and I didn't play. There was definitely like a long period where you were a guitar. I always play drums. I run with the bass. Um, so once I started learning guitar, I guess the idea of writing songs started, but I was kind of slow to that just because I was too bashful about actually writing lyrics and I was young and I just didn't, I didn't have enough confidence to do it. So I, I was a master song starter and uh, a master song leave uh, incompleter. <laughs> <laughs> so i mean i i'm still like once in a while i'll still pull out a song or piece of music from that period from like the early um, 2000s or even the late 90s uh, just a chord progression that i love that i never finished but um the, the i guess the i was sort of slowly slowly finishing stuff i tried to start a band with an amazing musician that uh, here in la called aaron Embry. directly following that pj harvey tour he was a guy that i met in the um you know, a few years prior, and he's he's a bona fide genius. Like he's an incredible musician, uh, 
he plays with all sorts of people. Um, and he and I just kind of always kept in touch. And um, I wound up moving into a house with he and his wife and we tried to start a band, but we, we just kind of, I mean, I think there was just like the, our personalities were pretty different, but we also just didn't, we, we met uh, a drummer named Steve Mister who cold emailed me out of the blue. I, like he had a mutual friend, so, uh, friend of his girlfriend's I had met somewhere briefly on the road. And he just sent me an email one day, basically um, saying, Hey, I'm Steve. I'm moving to LA. I like Twin Peaks too. Let's hang out. And, and <laughs> he, uh, he was a great drummer and he's still a friend. He moved back to Michigan, but um, don't see him as much anymore. But, but Aaron, myself and Steve kind of were trying to start something. We never got it together to find a, another musician. So we were always trying to make it work with the three of us. And we were always short one person. Like if Aaron, if Aaron was playing piano, which he's amazing at, um, he's amazing at everything he does. But, um, you know, if he was playing one of his songs, I had to play bass and Likewise, if it was one of my good songs, he had to play bass. So we were always kind of switching and it just never, we never really kind of got off the ground. But um, that, that was kind of the beginning of when I was, you know, sort of finishing songs and admitted to myself, like, I have to start something where I'm singing. Um, and then I just didn't do it. I just kept going on tour with other people. Um, it was too easy and tempting to, to experience the world through these you know, through these different bands and circumstances, I went on tour with Sparks, um, Gnarls Barkley, and, you know, had these incredible experiences and met all these incredible people and played this great music. But I, I was never really allowing myself the time to finish songs or work on my own thing until finally it had gotten too unbearable for me. And I, I put the band Dot Hacker together with my friend Clint Walsh, who I met on the Charles Barkley tour. So, I mean, we, and then we were on this tour together and we would sort of commiserate in hotel rooms late at night. And uh, we both kind of wanted to start something and we would just, you know, we would, we would make these grand plans. And then we kind of, we actually made it happen. Um, and we, he had played music with Eric Gardner, who's an amazing drummer. And then I had met, uh, Jonathan Hishke through my good friend Dan Elkin. They had played in the band Hella together. Um, yep. Jonathan is from Nebraska, and we kind of smashed those four people together, and we formed Dot Hacker. And I feel like I was still rather undeveloped and not totally uh, confident as a singer and writer yet, but we were just getting going. And one thing after another, like people would leave town and have to take a job and go tour for a bit. And we just kept hitting these bumps. And then, um, but we, we, we made a, we made a record, we recorded a record. And then basically like during the process of recording that record, uh, Flea called me to join the Chili Peppers. So at the end of that year in October, that officially happened. And though Dot Hacker didn't stop, we hadn't put out our first record yet. And it was just kind of dormant, but then through some kind of wonderful, you know, actually it's Steve McDonald again from Red Cross and plays in the Melvins now, uh, one of my dear friends. He was working at Warner Brothers Records at the time and he sort of played the Dot Hacker album to a guy down the hall who had a, a, a label called ORG, which was not a Warner subsidiary, but it was, he worked for Warner. So anything that 
was on ORG, if Warner was interested, they, it, there was a little bit of a, a relationship, but it was his yeah. label. So he, he, because I was now in the Chili Peppers and he knew, you know, my schedule through being on Warner Brothers with them, like, he's like, oh, let's just put this out. We'll see what it does. So Steve McDonald through a guy named Jeff Bauer gave Dot Hacker an actual life and an existence. And the, the record we made in 2009 came out in, I think, 2012. Inhibition, and then right? Inhibition, yeah, came out May first, two thousand twelve, and I, uh, and because now we actually had a, it was it was out there, it was in, you know, in in the public, uh, for all to hear. Um, yeah, I, I kind of was able to sort of any break I had from the Chili Peppers, I was able to get Dot Hacker together, and we would make an album. So it was almost like we were a functioning band because we put out records at a normal interval, but we never actually got to tour, and we never had a ton of time to really write together and we did a little tour and we played around LA a couple times um uh we played the troubadour a lot because our friend Brian was booking it and um we did a little tour opening for blonde redhead a lot of fun we went to Japan which was I think the last time we played we did two shows in Japan which was actually you know an amazing experience for me just to to go that uh, that far abroad and play you know, songs that I had written, lyrics I had written and sing them to people that actually, you know, paid and got on a train or in a car to, to, to see them. It was like, that was one of the most uh, emotional yeah. moments for me. Nice. <laughs> Got to be cool. A little, little different feeling from, from playing with all these other bands and stuff to just, you know, have it be your stuff, you know, yeah, yeah. Tunes that are, that are having that impact on people, you know? Yeah. And, and sorry. Uh, Dot Hacker is your grandmother's name, Dorothy? Not, Dorothy? That, or, not, my, or, not my grandmother, Eric Gardner, the drummer. Oh, Eric Gardner's drummer. Okay, it was his, his grandmother. grandmother. Her first yeah, name was, was Dot Hacker? His, or, or like Dorothy. No, Dorothy. It, yeah, Dorothy Hacker. Her, her, oh. His maternal grandmother was called Dorothy Hacker. And, what a cool uh, name. <laughs> yeah, that was her. And then uh, Dorothy is often shortened to Dot. So that was her name, Dot Hacker. And when we were trying to find a, a name, like we... We, we just couldn't decide on one. And Dot Hacker was kind of one that we were like, oh, that's all right. That's cool. I always thought it sounded a little techie, like kind of like, you know, like yeah, suggested. Yeah, records. but but because because it was actually his grandmother, we were sort of like, all right, we went with it. And then um, Plural One was actually a, a band name idea that I came up with back then. And when I made that first Plural One album, I it got very late in the in the recording process where I was sort of like, oh shoot, I got to call it something. There's no way in hell I'm calling it Josh Klinghoffer. So I got to call it something. So I, I had remembered that plural one, though I don't know if it's the best name. I like the concept, I, I, <laughs> you know, yeah. and I, I like that. I, I like it's that it's a, so confusing to people. <laughs> the, the opposite, like, you know, plural one. So yeah. Album with uh, some friends of mine uh, just a local band here. Like we, we had uh, called our, our EP demo separate connections, you know, like those kind of juxtapositions. Yeah. That's that. It's that oxymoronic kind of nineties uh, band name where you shove two words together. Yeah. And, you know, so how are you, yeah. how are you uh, performing that stuff? Right. Are you, do you actually have a band together like a backing band to play with you and do some of those things live i wish i don't i um just because pearl jam has given me this amazing and very gracious opportunity to open for them 
it make and I'm playing with them as well. It just makes far more sense logistically for me to travel solo and and be just be with them. So I can't bring other musicians, and I don't have a band anyway. But um, uh, if we were having this conversation before I had done it back in May, I would have been sort of like probably shaking at the thought of having to get up in front of these arenas and play by myself because I had never done it. But now I've done it a little bit, and it's fun. And you know, it's oddly, it's oddly kind of. Um, it's oddly comfortable just because mostly because I think Eddie, you know, in a, with his generous, beautiful spirit goes up before me, plays a song and basically tells you're back. Oh, we're oh, back. Here, we're back. We're back. Right. We're back. I'm going to leave all this in just like this. So yeah. Well, the <laughs> recording actually stopped. Happy accidents. Oh yes. When chemo so. left, the recording stopped, but, uh, we didn't, you didn't miss much chemo. Um, you can't no you didn't miss anything we, we were just, i was just saying uh yeah the, the audience there doesn't doesn't uh, want to rip my head off that's good because so, eddie told him to be kind like <laughs> when chemo told me he was friends with you and you worked at tempo together he was like josh was the biggest pearl jam fan i ever knew which is you know i so, definitely was back then and you ended up <laughs> what was the, so was the connection they started taking you out on tour with them and you're basically a member now right uh yeah a touring member i mean they um it, it was it's funny because the um i had the thought many times obviously because pearl jam is based in seattle um and they're not here in la but the chili peppers and pearl jam have such an intertwined and sort of coexistence like a, and a history together i mean obviously like pearl jam kind of only exists because jack irons gave eddie stone and jeff's demo or you know, Stone's demo tape from Seattle. And, um, you know, so there's this, is, which is all the kind of fan stories and the lore that I heard as a kid, like, oh, it's amazing. Like these guys had a band, Mother Love Bone, and their singer died. And, you know, they were able to, to make it happen again. Like they found this incredible guy down in San Diego. You know, just it was such a beautiful story. And, I, and that's what I love most about them. And I, I seriously have these moments on tour with them where, because where I, I don't play the whole show, and I, they certainly don't need me for songs that they've been playing uh, 30 years without me. So I'll be watching songs like Porch or Alive, songs from that first record. Um, and I'll just be watching the crowd and watching them and just going, oh, these are such good fucking people. And there was something in me that knew that at you know 11 years old. Because obviously I love the music, but with things that I get really into, often it's because I see something in the people who are making the music. And I, I mean, I almost feel like, you know, I mean, I said it out loud back then when I would look at my walls and they were all over my walls. It's like, I should be friends with these people. So, I mean, I guess, I guess in a way, I mean, that's been my driving force. Obviously I've always wanted to become comfortable enough in my own skin to write songs that I can get behind. And I still actually don't think I've, I've mastered that, but that's my, my, goal but i mean you know like it's just like anything else i mean i think through music is kind of how i learned to live my life and these role models that i had that i didn't know and i have been lucky in my life to to meet a lot of them uh yeah and i, I guess back That's to what i was cool. saying the, ch the chili peppers and pearl jam have this kind of this history i mean i i stopped following pearl jam so closely at a certain point um 
but I remember when I joined the show, there was, and, and every time we'd come to Seattle, I'm like, God, I wonder if the, like, it's funny. I, I, Pearl Jam guys, I haven't really met them too much yet. And then finally in 2016, Chili Peppers put out The Getaway and we were starting our tour. We played at the New Orleans Jazz Fest and so did Pearl Jam. I was like, hey, here we go. I'm going we maybe got to see them and, you know, hang out. Like we're both playing headlining. We're playing Saturday and Sunday or whatever. And then Mike McCready was doing a radio show for the Pearl Jam station on Sirius XM. And he reached out to Chad and myself to see if we wanted to be interviewed by him. So I, when I went in and spoke to him, it was kind of the first time I met him apart from one time when I was like 13, but uh, the, uh, which he doesn't remember, but um, the uh, you know that like that was the first time our paths really crossed when we played back to back days at the Jazz Fest, and uh, I got to hang out with Jeff. That one of those nights, we both went and saw Daniel Lanois play, who I had actually done some playing with um, back nice. in two thousand five or so with with my friend Aaron Embry, who I mentioned before. Um, uh, so yeah, hung out with Jeff a little bit. You know, and, and they all came and saw us play. Um, so that's when the seeds were planted, maybe like they saw, they saw me play, they, um, Mike and Chad kind of rekindled the friendship. And then throughout the next couple of years, Chad and I started doing these, these, um, charity gigs with Mike, like we were, you know, um, did, we did one down here in LA, Chad and Will Ferrell. Um, I don't know if you know this, but they sort of <laughs> resemble each other, but, uh, <laughs> the, uh, yeah. So there, there was like, just like a couple of Will Ferrell events we did, uh, did one up in Seattle with Mike, you know, Duff McKagan, who was an early influence on, uh, on me through, I always thought he was, you know, just a you know, cool guy, like right? the coolest guy in Guns N' Roses. And, um, yeah. And so we did all these events together, me and Mike and Chad and, um, and, yeah, I just little by little, I started being in their orbit. You know, I guess that's how it happened. And then Eddie came down as my, my last official performance with the Chili Peppers, well, November 2nd, 2019. And we played at Flea's Music School for the fundraiser that they have every year to raise money for the Silver Lake Conservatory of Music. And that was kind of the first time I really hung with Eddie like properly. And, and you know, he knew that I was a fan of his and he, he called and left a message and he was saying, hey, you want to you want to play some songs? So we played Corduroy and we played a song called Society that's on the uh, the soundtrack to uh, Into the Wild. Um, yeah, and Flea, I remember Flea saying, man, it was so crazy when you were playing with Eddie. He looked so happy. And I think he was just making himself feel better because he was about to fire me. Mm. <laughs> oh, yeah. But it opened wow. up like, you know, another dream gig absolutely so absolutely it's pretty yeah. awesome no it's incredible like i am the i am i'm one of the luckiest people i've ever met <laughs> it's pretty pretty obscene i have to ask has stevie wonder uh said anything to you by taking away his uh rock hall fame do you know this okay well no, because I've actually never met Stevie. Even uh, there was there was many times last summer where I was going to because he played harmonica on Eddie Vedder's solo album, and he kept you know okay I'm gonna come on Tuesday, I'm gonna come on Wednesday, and then I just like when he wound up coming, I just wasn't there. And he ripped a, an amazing harmonica solo on this Eddie Vedder solo album that we made last year. But um, okay, so I did this interview with a guy. Do you remember Stryker? He was on K Rock. 
Um, he's, oh, I don't, yeah. He has a podcast now. I went to his house and he brought up the Hall of Fame. And, and then he told me, I'm no longer the youngest. You're not? No, I lost that dubious honor. I mean, it was funny because I never felt like I deserved to be in the Hall of Fame. I mean, what did I do? But so who, I mean, who is it, it was Bieber? always kind of funny. No, no way. <laughs> it's 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 Elon Rubin from uh, Queens of Stone Age. Nine Inch Nails. Oh, Nine Inch Nails. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and it totally makes sense because I remember he was young as hell when he joined their band and they got in a couple years ago. So obviously he and he's played with them now for a long time. So he's in and he was. 31 when he entered the hall and I was 32. Even though though Trent was all like, F this, who needs to be in the Hall of Fame? You know, did did he say that? Well, their induction was pretty cool, but it was when they were doing the video inductions during COVID. It was like everyone got a mini documentary and kind of style. Did he He say F this while being there? No, I'm making it like putting words in his mouth, but like I saw some interviews where he was just kind of, he was kind of being cool. Like he is like, I don't need this to like, you know, validate my career as an artist or whatever. Still pretty cool though. To win Oscars. (laughs) (laughs) He's almost, he's almost an EGOT now, right? Isn't he close to being an EGOT? (laughs) Mm. Yeah. Well, just wait till downward spiral, the musical (laughs) (laughs) smash Broadway hit. And then then he'll start collecting his Tony's. Question, Josh. (laughs) You were offered a position to play guitar for Nine Shields at one point, right? Uh, so the legend has it, but I don't know uh, if it ever got, I don't know if it ever, I, I, I was, I was on two occasions actually. So I, I was, but it was, it was mainly um, like, I want to say it was, uh, it was kind of through their record label person. And it may have been the same guy both times, um, like uh, six years apart, maybe. Um, I, I forget if there was maybe more to the story because it was so long ago. Um, yeah, but I, I mean, there was talk of me playing. I mean, maybe John Frusciante had something to do with it. I don't remember. I think one of them, I think Tyrone told me that it was John. One of them was John, but I didn't know there's yeah. two offers. That's cool. Well, there was another one later on, like, a, like the next big tour they did or the two tours later, they needed a someone. And, and by this point I had played with, you know, Beck and PJ Harvey. And I was, you know, the first time I was just, you know, playing with Bob Boris and I hadn't really done much um, live playing just with him. But uh, yeah, the second time I was actually like a touring person by now, I guess. And uh, Mm -hmm. Mark Williams, his name was, he worked at Interscope. He had a record label name. He actually, I think if I'm remembering correctly, he signed Geraldine Fivers, the Virgin. Um, But he had his own label called um outpost records and he put out that amazing hayden record that i love you remember oh, hayden that, can, yeah, canadian, that canadian singer songwriter that i always loved um yeah mark williams put that record out i'm pretty sure uh, and I've, i i used to run into mark williams in the weirdest places all over the place like i feel like i ran into him on the streets of new york <laughs> twice twice it's just like hey Mark Williams. Yeah, but he was a great guy. And he thought of me uh, on behalf of Nine Inch Nails. And I just, I never did it. Like, I mean, there was two, two times. Like the first time I think I was sort of like, oh, I, don't, I don't even think I'm qualified for that. But I, I used my, my snotty response was that I wasn't a fan of this, which, which was true. Um, I definitely appreciate what he does and what they do. But at the time, especially, I was not a fan. Was, uh, hey, it happens. But, 
Yeah, but I mean, I think I, I think I got, you know, like he was probably getting cool points for saying that he didn't want to be in the Hall of Fame. I think I, I was getting cool points for being like Nine Schnells, whatever. <laughs> yeah. I heard, I heard, uh, you know, Limp Biscuit might need someone to fill in for Wes Borland. <laughs> oh God! Like, you have to wear makeup. I don't know. And contact <laughs> lenses. No, oh, yeah. <laughs> But uh, uh, dude, you had a, you know, you've had an amazing, amazing career trajectory, man. These days, like so many, so many cool bands, artists, people, musicians that you've been uh, played with, been a part of, like for a long time, man. It's pretty awesome. It it is. I'm I'm grateful every day. Even you know, especially more so, more and more and more. I I kind of like I, I don't bum out about. I mean, I'm just older now and I'm not I'm kind of like you realize that being bummed out is not making your one time on earth. Uh, it's not time well spent. But, you know, like I, I, I'm I just spend my time being grateful for the, the journey that I've had and, you know, all the people I've met and all the all the experiences I've had. I mean, it's pretty it is pretty unique and, and, and pretty special. So uh, you, you still know. like going on the road like like for like the long tours, you know, like not everybody digs that as much as they get older. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's always fun for me to play music. It doesn't matter where. And like those two hours or those, you know, four hours that I'm at the venue, like before, especially with Pearl Jam, we do a lot of playing backstage we kind of Eddie's so great at switching the set list up. So there's always new songs. And, um, and, uh, but, you know, just touring after the two years that we had, uh, during the COVID era, I mean, it, it's a little weird to me just because, you know, I know there's loads of people getting that virus out there in the crowd. And, and because especially with, I mean, I don't know if every band is as diligent as Pearl Jam is, but Pearl Jam is really, I'm incredibly serious about their, with their COVID protocols. And even with how serious they are, it still bites us in the arse every time we turn around. Like on the mm. first U.S. leg, we had two band members went down, ultimately had to cancel some shows. On this yeah. last tour, you know, we had we had some COVID around. Um, we were able to get through and not have to cancel until the end when we had to cancel, but for other reasons, for vo- vocal vocal reasons, mm. uh, you know, vocal vocal wear and tear. But uh, yeah, I mean, every every time I think like, oh, you know like uh it's safe to go in the water you know you, you see that fin <laughs> yeah kind of waiting for this latest latest surge to die down yeah Maybe yeah it's, i mean you yeah, know it's, I, I guess it's like um it's definitely nice to go travel around europe but i mean because we're so serious about keeping healthy and and uh keeping the tour moving um we don't we don't none of us go out much you know we can go out for a walk or something but you know, sneak away to a, a shop if you if there's a shop that you really need to go to because it's only in that city. You know, but we've got two. I've got two masks on. I'm like trying to in and out as quick as I can. But you know, so just there's lots of sitting around in hotel rooms. I read five books on that last tour, which That's is great. Good. But yeah, but you know, it gets a little it gets a little strange to be like, wow, I'm really just like in Europe and not seeing much of it. <laughs> but yeah. again, the the underlying the underlying. Uh, answer to your question is um i still i still love playing music a- anywhere i can so i'd uh, say that this is the show is a great album oh thank you Kimo. thank yeah, you i really i would love to send you a copy of it 
when I get it. <laughs> I still don't have any vinyl copies of it. Yeah, it's a great I record. Actually, yeah. Thank you. I actually do. You, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll send you the whole uh, Plural One collection if you don't if you have if you don't have it. Or did I, I did I send it to you? Not yet. I have a. Oh, okay. I have the, I have the first one. I have the first okay. one. Okay. You one with yeah. you. You know, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I I feel like I have a memory of dropping something in the mail to you in the last couple of years, but I forget what that was. Oh, maybe I'm making that up. It's okay. I remember something. Yeah, but I'll send you anything uh, anything you want, anything you don't have. I would be happy with. I'll drive it up to you. <laughs> nice. There you go. Cool. I think uh, it's on. a good place to yeah. leave it, but uh, Josh Klinghoffer, thanks so much for coming, doing our little show. Um, he, he's probably played on something you've heard out there, people listening, like long career he's had. Check out Dot Hacker. Check out Plural One. Very cool stuff, what I've heard. I need to dig in some more. I like to hear this new plural one. Thanks so much for coming on, man. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I, it's, it's really good to see you, Kimo, and really nice to meet you guys. Um, I gave up coffee a couple of months ago, so I, I think I'm overdoing it with the tea. So I hope I didn't talk too much. <laughs> that was perfect. <laughs> oh, that's all right. Yeah. It's all good, man. Yeah. yeah. No, thanks for giving you. me a, a place to talk about my, our past in Northridge. Yeah, for sure. Uh, those are some crazy times. I wouldn't give it up for anything. No, nor I. Actually, we'll leave it with this. If you ever want chemo, I don't know if I can afford it anymore, but one of my big plans, what I think we should still do, some of us, we should get together and buy common grounds and reopen it. And, <laughs> and so we, we have common grounds in North. We should go hang out. At, Dude, that I was my favorite that place. place. I the used best to hit the open mic. I hit the open yeah. mic nights there like so many times. Yeah. Me too. It was the first place I ever sang in front of people. Uh, the uh, I, I had this harebrained idea to to place an ad in you know LA Times and the CSUN paper and say anyone remember Common Grounds? I'm collecting pictures. I want to and I was going to try and and rent that spot because it was for rent for a while and I wanted to recreate Common Grounds and basically just recreate the '90s in that place <laughs> and just like have this night this shrine to '90s coffee culture. Man, bring it back. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. All right, guys. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for coming. And, on. and if any of your listeners have any pictures of Common Grounds, send them to me. 